Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. Uh, it is the 26th of January in Australia when I'm releasing this episode. Uh, it is Australia Day. Australia Day is a day that uh, I have very mixed feelings about. I think it's uh, nice that we have a day to look at our country and uh, examine uh, what we're doing right and wrong, celebrate what we're doing right and maybe take a moment to reflect on the things that we're doing wrong. I understand the conflicts about that day being January 26 uh, for our original owners of our land, for our Indigenous population. Uh, that is a day that is hard for them to celebrate. And I think uh, if we are truly to have an Australia Day, a day that it should be a day that all Australians can be involved in and feel like they are not alienated from. Uh, I don't mind this, the idea of us celebrating uh, January 26 or acknowledging January 26 in some way. I think that celebrating is probably the wrong word uh when a day causes so much pain to a certain percentage of your community it's hard to celebrate fully uh with that in mind at least from my point of view it is it can be a great day january 26th i love i'm going to sit here today and listen to the hottest 100 on triple j uh it's an amazing celebration of the best uh, music from uh, around the world the largest democratic music poll in the entire world and it's a great opportunity for me to catch up with the the uh, best hundred songs that cool people think are cool. Because I'm getting older now and I can't keep up with the young people's music, so I'm just going to sit there all day. And then it's like a cramming session of me being up to date and holding on to my youth for one more little moment. Uh, I didn't really mean to talk about Australia Day and uh, I haven't fully realised my thoughts, so I won't continue on. Uh, the only thing that I wanted to acknowledge is there are mixed feelings about this day. Um, I like celebrating the good things about Australia Uh and, but I also think that's important while we celebrate the good things that we acknowledge the things that we might not be doing as well as we can. And I and I don't think that's a bad thing, by the way. I, I think, you know, it's that attitude that some people will say, if you don't love it, leave it. If you love it, then you want it to be better. If you love it, then you're willing to work with it and to always encourage it to be better. That's what I believe. I think that's what real love is anyway. So... Uh, anyway, I, I mentioned that because I'm, I'm putting this podcast out on Australia Day. Now, maybe you're not listening to it on Australia Day because you were listening to the Hottest 100 cramming young people music like I was. Uh, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're in another country and uh, you don't know Triple J or maybe you, uh, you're you not into that sort of music and you were lo- looking for something to listen today. I thought today was a good day to put up this podcast. That's all I'm really going to say. Uh, because uh, today's guest was actually in 2009 the New South Wales Young Australian over the year. So I thought on Australia Day, what better uh, thing to do than celebrate on a day when our Prime Minister has given Prince Philip a knighthood, brought back this, firstly, this ridiculous old system that we should be beyond. Uh, Australian uh, listeners will know that I'm a Republican. I don't have anything particular against the royal family. Um you know, I think the British can keep them and they're a good tourist attraction and, and all that sort of thing. But I think it's weird that in Australia that, you know, when we're playing England, you know, at the World Cup in football, you know, the head of our country won't even back for our team. Uh, I think someone who is Australian should be in charge of Australia and I've always believed that. But today, Tony Abbott has decided he's going to bring back knighthoods. I assume he's also going to get himself a couple of coconut shells and bang them together in front of his knights as he walks around. But... Uh, he gave his knighthoods, uh, one to Angus Houston, who uh, a lot of people speak very highly of, and if you are going to give out a stupid award, then you might as well give it to somebody good who's done a lot of service to the country. So uh, I have nothing against Angus Houston. I, I don't know enough of uh, what he's done 
enough to know if there's any problems, but I've certainly heard lots of great things about the work that he's done for the country. I don't believe in the idea of the award, but if you're going to come up with the award, you might as well give it to somebody good. The other one's Prince Philip. Yeah, the Queen's husband. Uh, He got it for services to letting uh, us have his wife on our money, I assume. Well, I mean, he's a casual racist and he's a little bit misogynist, so I guess we're like, yay, you're a knight of Australia now. Anyway, I'm not going to bang on about that either. Again, I just mean that I want to uh, contrast that with somebody who genuinely should be celebrated, and that's today's guest. Uh, Kurt Fernley is his name. If you don't know who Kurt Fernley is, I don't actually do a very good job of explaining it on the podcast. Um, I assume normally that, because I don't really do a little intro or anything at the start of these things about who these people are or what they've done, um, I assume that if you... A, you can just enjoy the chat, listen without prejudice, or B, if you're interested, you can go and sort of Google the stuff or Wikipedia the stuff yourself, find out a little bit about these guests and explore them more. Um, I don't really want the interviews, the conversations uh, to be about things that you can just go and easily research yourself. So I reference his book a lot in this interview. The book is called Pushing the Limits, but because I'd read it, I tried to avoid some of the stuff that he talks about. But I'll give you a little quick preview in case you're interested. Kurt Fernley uh, was born without the lower portion of his spine. Uh, he grew up in Kharkov, which is something we talk about quite a lot in the interview, and he took up wheelchair racing in his teens. Now, we touched on that, but then we kind of wander off to other areas. I should mention this. He's gone on to be a three-time Paralympic gold medalist and has won marathons, including the prestigious New York, London, and Chicago marathons multiple times. He's crawled Kokoda, which we uh, talk a little bit about. Uh, he's crawled up the Great Wall to China. He sailed in a winning Sydney to Hobart yacht race. Uh, he's amazing. Anyway, and he's also a great bloke, and this was a fantastic chat, and I really enjoyed having it with him. Uh, Kurt was uh, good enough. I had a copy of his book, the one that I had read, Pushing the Limits. Uh, he signed a copy for me. But because I've already read it, we decided we would sign it, and Kurt and I talked about this. He would love it to go to somebody in the audience, but... He, Uh, He tells a story in the book about uh, when he was young, a stranger or someone that maybe his mum knew a bit gave her a copy of the book, I Can Jump Puddles. And it was very inspirational uh, and it helped her out a lot. So Kurt and I decided that maybe there's someone out in the audience here who've got someone who might be inspired by this book. Maybe there's someone in your life who's in a similar situation or you feel like might get inspiration from Kurt and his story. So I have a signed copy of Kurt's book and if you just email me, will at willanderson.com.au. Now, I assume I may get more than one story, and I apologize to those that I can't send a book to. I might basically just go first in best dress because I'm not going to you know, try to decide between the, the value of people's stories. I'm sure they're all uh, wonderful stories and, and, and um, each have their own value. So, um, But if there is one person, if there's someone out there and you think, you know, this is the perfect thing, I know the person who really needs this right now, uh, write to me, will at willanderson.com.au, and I will... Um, I will send you out a signed copy of Kurt's book. For the rest of you, go and buy the book. It's fantastic. It really is. Uh, It's a great read. It's a really easy read, but it's a wonderful story. And if you don't cry a couple of times, then uh, you might have to go to the doctor and check if you actually have a heart. Uh, Here you go. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, This is Kurt Fernley. Hello and 
welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm back in the pod cave. I'm very excited about that. I feel at home here. Uh, this is where uh, this is a little uh, hut out the back of my house, uh, next to my office, because my office is out the back of my house. And uh, it's it's look, it's not glamorous at the moment. It's actually full of just like there's a ladder next to me that I've draped some like football jerseys over to pretend that that's actually not just where I'm keeping the ladder. And there's a lot of posters that are just leaned against the wall. And there's a couple of toolboxes next to today's guest, which makes me look a lot more manly than uh, I actually am. They are both my girlfriend's toolboxes. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, I, I look, uh, I'm not going to muck around, but it's very nice to have our uh, guest here at my home. Uh, he did say to me before we started the podcast that he didn't ever see me in casual clothes. I went for a swim just before he arrived, so, so I'm basically just in my togs. Uh, uh, guest, uh, could you please introduce yourself? Who are you? I am uh, I am Kurt Fernley. I thought that that was actually a bit of an artwork. The, the footy jerseys thrown over a ladder. thought you were trying to say something about the Australian culture. I, I appreciate yeah. that, Kurt. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that you went with that because yeah. <laughs> I honestly put those jerseys, they were hanging up over my other shoulder here before you arrived, and okay. I went, I can't, intru- I can't interview Kurt in my like, pod cave with a ladder just in the corner. So I draped them on there in the hope that you might think that thing. And, and sport as well. You really went above and beyond to make me feel like I'm... Well, that, that's what I thought. Yeah. No, I thought sport, you know, you're a famous sports person. This is actually, these are two of my favourite things here. Uh, so this one here, this uh, this Western Bulldogs jersey here, uh, this is, uh, they uh, appointed me, this is my lifelong team that I've uh, supported and they made me an ambassador of, 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 like, of the club and awesome. so that's very exciting. And it's signed by all the players, and they gave me my own uh, own jumper that says Anderson up the top there. Oh, That's beautiful. pretty cool. And then the Socceroos sent me this one, number fifteen, which has my name on the back of it as well, Killing which it. was very nice. And because, I, but but they only sent it because I look like one of their players, a guy called Nathan Burns. Apparently. Oh yeah, I know Nathan. <laughs> Nathan actually grew up in a town next door to mine. So Is that right? I, I grew up in Carcor of two hundred and fifty people, and Nathan was. Uh, He's about ten years younger than me, but he he went to Blaney High School, and he's a uh, he's a really good kid. Really okay, good kid. so apparently there is some uh, dude. I, I wonder if my dad ever went through that town. Yeah. Because... <laughs> <laughs> no, I know the Burns family. <laughs> <laughs> A hundred percent there. Oh, it might be the other way around. What about Mr. Burns? Did he ever go through Denison? <laughs> That's a, that is something that I would check out. But Western Bulldogs, they actually have a disability inclusion round where they uh, raise funds when they play the Magpies mm. every year. And I've been trying to make it down there for that game because I don't know how much was raised, but, you know, 10 or, 10 or 20 grand to, um, uh, what is it? Funding. It's a particular charity, but I, I can't think of it at the moment. But sport, grab and hold of social stuff, love it. Yeah, well, that's. I mean, this is obviously one of the areas that's going to be great to talk to you about today. Uh, for those um, who don't know, I've just been, finished reading your book, as I was telling you off air, Pushing the Limits, and it is, it's amazing. I like, I love sports biographies anyway, but this is one of my absolute favourites. Like, awesome. it probably make you feel a bit uncomfortable, because particularly with some of the messages in the book, uh, but fuck, if you don't cry a couple of times <laughs> reading that book, I was on a plane sobbing in public, and I was like, it's fucking Fernley's fault. It's not... <laughs> <laughs> this is not me. It's hard. It's so hard to write a book. It's so well. I, right, t- talk us through the process of writing a book. So I had the absolute best best guy to work with, Warwick yep. Green. Yeah, I had been approached since two thousand and eight to write a book, and right. it had been uh, then escalated after Kokoda, and it was just like every month you get another email through, and the the, the same lady that approached me the very first time uh, from Penguin, Andrea, um, she approached me again every six months later, and then and then she gave me uh, Warwick's previous book about Jim Steins and I which is it. also an amazing an amazing, amazing book yeah yeah and um 
for those that don't know, Jim, Jim was the president of uh, the Demons. and The Melbourne Football Club. Melbourne and football and club, it was yeah. the first... Irishman to ever win a Brownlow medal, which is the number one award in the AFL, and yeah. he become a real legend of the club, and then uh, he had cancer and died way before he he should have. And a guy with such a decent understanding of humanity as well. Right. Like, he was just instrumental in starting the Reach Foundation, course, which yeah. is for yeah. uh, you know kind of underprivileged young people to help yeah. them kind of. Not like the interesting thing about Reach, and I don't know everything about it, but I'd actually love to get someone that you know, who's involved in Reach. You know what? Who, Kurt, you're now a producer of this show. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I will find that person. I, I'm going to get Jules Lund because my understanding is Jules Lund, the Australian celebrity Jules Lund, the radio guy and the TV guy, yeah. he actually, I believe, went through Reach. Like, he oh, was wow. one of the kids who, like, Jim Stein's helped. And I know when they made a documentary about Jim's life that Jules was instrumental in that awesome. in that documentary. So there you go. We'll get him on. But that's not, that's for another day. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to – let's start with – I'm going to – ask you about all the things in the book but people get annoyed there's only one thing people get annoyed with well actually there's a lot of things people get annoyed with about this podcast but i've ignored all of them except for this one okay which is i like to ask if you have a philosophy up the top and then we can talk about everything else yeah. uh do you do you have one i uh, i think so like when people ask you to sign a book they ask for a sentence you know something inspiring where it's hard to do that in just right. one single sentence but so i think if I was to look back on myself and think of one meaning that has affected me the most, it'd be that, you know, my mum always had this fear that I would be sitting inside watching life. She right. always thought that that was her biggest, her biggest fear was that I would, I would be watching life and not being a part of it. And so I would say throughout everything, the kind of common theme in my life is just life's about getting your hands dirty. Right. Like, it's about getting in there, ripping it to pieces, and kind of just going, yeah, next. Right. And I, I look, I think that's what certainly comes through in the book. Yeah. Like, from the start, you know, if, you, if you were going to make a movie about it, like, all the characteristics are there from being a kid. So, I want to talk about, let's start, you know, there. That seems like an obvious place to start. You mentioned where you're from, Karkoa? Karkoa? Karkoa. Yeah. And... Uh, now, a tiny place, right? How small was it? It is 250 and shrinking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great little Not story. after this book, mate. Oh, this yeah. book, there is going to be a boom. House prices. It's through, through the roof. roof. Yeah. It's going to be like when Perth discovered mining, yeah, mate. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, I get back, to, back there a bit and it is changing. You know, like when I grew up, when I grew up, it felt like there was a there was an elder an elder part to the village that just were invested in everybody's kids, uh-huh. and they were they were part of the whole thing. When I was brought home, disability wasn't just my family's thing; it it was a community thing, right? You know, which I would love that to be the case. Absolutely everywhere. Well, I mean, that's that classic without wanting to be tried about it because now they've written, you know, books with this title and it makes the phrase seem naff. But it takes a village. It does. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. And that's something, and I particularly imagine that if the community hadn't been open to you or hadn't been supportive of you, it may be a very different story that we're telling, right? Mate, uh, so from the the get-go, my mum and dad had never experienced life with a disability before. They'd never had it in their world before. And as you say in the book, one of the things the doctor even... One of the doctors even suggested to them at the hospital that it didn't need to be their responsibility if they didn't want, right? Multiple times. Yeah. So there was not only the the immediate... Because I was... One of the first guys with what I have to go through 
the hospital system. Right. And so I, so what is that for people who don't know? But for people who are new to your story, yeah, tell people it's lumbar lumbar sacralogenesis. So it was, you know, I've I've met other guys that have it since since then, and I think there's been one every year in New South Wales since I was around. And yep. I still run into. Them. I blame vaccines. Don't vaccinate your kid. No! If one, if one... No! <laughs> that's basically how vaccine science works. The yeah. anti-vaccine movement basically just works like that. Oh, People just it... pluck things out of the air it and just go. It is one of the most frustrating things for right. me to come across because I, I've, you two are third world countries, right? Of course, you go in there and you hang out with with kids with disabilities, and you're like, so if this kid polio. You know, like polio is right. coming back in countries like like Pakistan, right? And, and you just think, something that we, you know, we're almost at the point of saying we were done with we as can, a world. We can get rid of, right? You know, like and even in Africa, we were there last year, and half of the kids in this camp that we were at, half the kids with disabilities, had rickets. You know, right. for, for, it's not really a vaccine, but if it had five dollars worth of. Um, worth of um, vitamins or, right. or, or, or nutrition to give to them for the first six months of your life, you, you don't have records. But because they don't have the five cents worth of vitamins and, and that, that, that they will live in that community and because the community is unable to, to, to provide a, a space for them, a stage for them, they will sit down and they'll be watching it. Okay, so we're going to jump all over the we place today, but that's okay. <laughs> we've got time. We've got a beer. We've got time. Yeah. We'll be fine. Okay. So... I want, let's talk about Africa because that, like, what took you there? Why were you there? Like, and 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 what were you doing while you were there? You know what? I think that to tell Africa, I probably should go back to Kharkov. So good. All right, well, it's let's go. So back. weird. I like that. You are definitely now producing this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At last, we have got somebody on who knows what they're doing. Well, good. <laughs> we'll go back to Kharkov and then take us to Africa. I've probably had too many coffees and now throwing the beer on top. By the time we Beautiful. finish this podcast, yep. I will have evened out a little bit. That's right, and we'll be fine. But yeah. uh, the good stuff's going to come early, though. Yeah. I can tell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Kharkov, when I was brought home, my family, my family instilled that idea that I'm going to just rip in. Right. You know, like we only had, so my house wasn't really accessible and we didn't have funds to make it accessible. You know, like, you know, when you're a kid and you pick up your your dad's paycheck and you see like, it was like 200 bucks. Right. You know, and I never knew that we weren't financially, you know, we, we were pretty poor. Never right. knew it. No idea. Um, but we didn't have the finances to adjust for, for disability in that community. Right. Um, so and I, you were the youngest of youngest of five kids. five kids. So it's not yeah. like you were the only priority that your parents Man, had. Their, their priority was keeping everyone in in clothes, right? Know? Yeah, it's <laughs> just the way it is. And then, um, so they started to make sure that I was into doing what all my family were doing. They making sure that I was in there fighting around, crawling after my family, playing sport. And then school come along, and they were told again that. You know, Kirk can't go to mainstream school. He'll need to be taken an hour away, and either you leave him in the facility or you move and you you live there as well. And my principal then in Kharkov Public said that we've had his his uncles, his one of his grandparents through the school, his dad, his siblings. We're having him as well. Right. Like one guy stood up and he fought for me when I couldn't fight for myself. It's amazing, isn't it? That, that story that it doesn't it, it, along this journey. There's always going to be times where people say no. Yeah. And in those times, you need someone else to come in and, and fight, you oh, know, right? Man. And, and it's just who would have thought that one person can be so pivotal through such a small period, 
but change everything, you know? It, it, it's it, it's really amazing. And have you had the have, did you or have you had the opportunity to talk to that principal about how important that was for you? Yeah, well, there's probably three or four people that have just sent me in a different direction, and he's he's one of them. And I was able to, I am still able to run into him, and and um, and then uh, my other, teachers have like changed my world a number of times, which is why I became a teacher. Right. Um, and that. They, everyone that I try and chase back down to say thank you, they're like, oh, no, 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 it's nothing, it's nothing, it's nothing. <laughs> but if you've got to recognize it, right? Right. You have to. I mean, it's one of the, it's a topic that comes up a lot on this podcast, but the value of teachers in everybody's life who, who, who I've talked to so far versus the value that we do not give them as a society sure. is a massive discrepancy. For sure. Like it's the thing that we constantly come back to is there was a teacher or a period of education or something that helped you become the person you want to be. Yeah. Yet, you know, like the te- the marks to getting into teaching, you know, aren't at the level they should be. We're not, we don't, as a society, I've said this a million times and they're never going to let me run for politics because I'm drinking at midday. But, <laughs> but the thing that I would say is that we should have as, as a society value teaching and nursing and these things that we need, you know, as a society yeah. at the highest level. You know, we should have a scheme that says if you do your teaching, you know, degree then and you work as a teacher for five years, then we will pay for every aspect of your education. You know, mm-hmm. we, we value this as a society. Yeah. And same for nurses. If you're willing to study nurses, nursing and work in the industry for a minimum, say, five years, you know, or whatever, you know, an acceptable period of time, then we as a society recognize that this is a job that we all need that is underpaid and undervalued and we will all pay for your education and who yeah. you are it's so important and then the measure of a good teacher shouldn't be about the the, the mark of one to a hundred of every single kid they get through as well but that, that that teacher right there he genuinely cared about his future student and he right. had done something that changed the life of me and my community and you know like it's not just the person with the disability that benefits from this lifestyle within community Everyone does, you know? Right. And then... So, where do you think your parents... To Talk me about that because it seems to me so often they have been so... Not only so strong, but also so uh, confident in their own opinion that they were right rather than perhaps the, you know, the person whose medical job or whatever it job was, you know, the, the government worker who said that you've got to send him to this school. They ha- seem to have had a strength the whole time of like, no, 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 we know what's best. Where does that come from? I think it went through assessing my happiness. Right. Like they were, and mum, mum, who's, who's in the best position to assess whether a child's happy? whether they're living in a way that is meaningful for them and their family. Like, uh, somebody who's, who's remote from the family have no, no real, uh, I guess, unless it's a danger thing, you know, but they can't really see how I'm interacting with my brothers and my right. sisters and my schoolmates. Well, I think mum saw that I was enjoying it and just said, you know what, you can tell me to the cows come home that he shouldn't be doing it, but he's liking it and he's finding strength in it. My family are finding strength in it, so just... It's the way it is. Okay. So your childhood, from at least what you know, I've read about, seemed to be pretty normal, right? Extremely normal. Well, not really normal for the 1980s. But right. <laughs> so you, you sit there and you go, what do you mean you didn't have a toilet inside? Right. You know, like, 
What do you mean that there was no... But that's a good example, right, of the way that they weren't able to adapt. Like, you know, they, they did not have the finances to adapt. Because these days, if, you know, they, they bring you home and the first thing they would do is going, well, Kurt will need a toilet inside the house because yeah. we can't have him, like, dragging himself out in the middle of the night to the outside toilet where yeah. there's, like, spiders and snakes and... Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes though we will we we're getting to the place where where we can fund those things. Right, where, like okay. the NDIS will get in there and that will say how do we get your kid to to be able to live within the community and have a have a normal life. And obviously the first thing will be inside toilet. Right. <laughs> you know? But until the last couple of years that right. hasn't existed really. Right, still to this still, day. Yeah. yeah. So there's kids there's there's kids currently who will come through my house, young kids wheelchair races um I think Sheridan, when we got married, she didn't realise that we were starting a halfway house. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> Kids will come through for a week, but they'll be sick at the end of the week because they'll be reusing catheters, you know? Right. Because like they, they, a catheter is a dollar a pop and they'll get funded for one catheter per day for a year. Right. You know, like there's yeah. some bloody horrible things going on there and and hopefully we're rectifying this over the next decade while the NDIS goes through, but... Even back in the day, even even then, when they would have said you need an inside toilet, that's like saying to mum and dad, you need, you know, fly the kid to Mars. You know, right. like, that's just wasn't it wasn't an option. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, at the end of the day, we we worked it out, and and then community when it came to the point for me to, I was going through high school, I think, and I went through the mainstream primary school, and then got into high school, and. Um, I was shown wheelchair sport in like year eight. So talk, yeah. So talk us through that because I think that's one of the really kind of exciting parts of the story. Yeah, is like you know, so you, you you're just a normal kid. You know, you're going to classes, you're doing your thing, and you're not, you know, like as you talk about, you know, you're mucking around as much as anybody yeah. does. You know, you know, it's yeah. very much, you know, that sort. And then what happens? So yeah, you just. I guess when 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 you were when I was a kid, because I was so sheltered, I never saw. I never really saw myself because well, you saw yourself as in the same way people looked at you the same way they looked at the bloke next to you. Right. You know? And then I went into Blaney High and I noticed that I was different. And yeah. I noticed that there was, you know, at the point where you want to hide, there was no place for me to hide. And when it comes to sport, I would go out and I would try and play these things that I'd done every day since I was a kid. And all of a sudden it was just, I was, I felt like there was, Thing that just made me not like anyone else. What uh, is your what's your emotional state at that time? Then, uh, you know, what's the emotion like? The, the emotional state of every teenager is insecurities, right? So I, I guess that's absolutely right. Yeah, you, that's what everybody's going through at that stage. Yeah, but suddenly you're in this new environment. You've and you've kind of come from this place where you know everybody knows you and everybody yeah. like treats you normally, and you're just part of you know that town and that community. Yeah, and suddenly you're in this place where you're like, hang on, I'm different, and I'm very obviously different because of course yeah. everyone gets to a big high school. And after a while, after enough years, we all find out what everybody's soft spot is, and that's what people weasel in on, right? Yeah, for but sure. yours is immediate, like yeah. it's obvious immediately, right? Well, you know what? It took me a long time to figure out why people were looking, uh-huh. and it took me a, a little while anyway. I didn't just walk, go straight in the first day, and be like, "Oh wow," you know. I felt different because you know there were just so many people, but right. it took me a while to pin it down that it was actually because because. 
of that because the chair, because I couldn't do these things. And I wasn't as everyone kept getting bigger and I just kept being me, you know. And Well, my, we were talking about Stella Young before we started recording. Yeah. And Stella wrote, uh, if people don't know Stella, she unfortunately uh, passed away just recently. Uh, she wrote an amazing piece, though, about like the reaction, what the parents, about what reaction she'd like parents to have when kids, you know, saw her in the supermarket or whatever. And, and I won't try to paraphrase it. It's a really great piece. But, yeah. like, what 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 do kids need to know? Are, are kids pretty open-minded or are they closed-minded? Do they – is it a real mix? I, I mean, I don't have any experience of this. So, I'm, I'm like, I genuinely am just asking. I don't know what I kind of love is. how kids do it. Yeah, I love kids will come up and they will just be open, you know. And there's there's like, hey, what's what's happened to you or something? And right. you're, you're they'll just them. ask what they they want to ask yeah, rather than exactly. edging around it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And kids, you're so happy to just talk to them, talk right. them through how your spine and your legs, and you know, this is just how I get around. And there there becomes this sort of normality there. You know, you know sometimes that confrontation or that interaction can be uncomfortable when it, the guy the people are like older. Right. And it's some guy who you know is really well educated will walk up and be like, "Hey, so what happened to you?" You know, right? And it's just off the street, right. cold. And I'm like, well, well, "What the fuck happened to you? Yeah, like, how did you get raised with no yeah. manners?" Well, um, <laughs> that's actually sometimes some of the nicer ways to do it. Like yeah. people will come up and they will, they will be like, uh, "Your life must be like, it's so shit that you have to put up with this," you know, like, and that's. Right. Automatic, uh, like, just punching the face. My, my life's awesome. I know. I've well, got like heaps of Olympic gold medals and shit. Well, not even that. I look at this guy. I look at the people as soon as they do it, you know, and you just, right. you look at them and think that they have this idea that they have it better than you purely because of mobility. Right. Like in life, surely there's more to life than that. You know, like when someone sits there and they feel this idea that they have it better than somebody purely because of how they got there. You know, it just spins me out. It, well, it, I think what is interesting that I think it goes back to that thing that you first started by saying, which is that you've never... They imagine that you sit by a window and watch the watch world it. go by. That's why they're saying that, because in their head, they're not like your parents. They're not the people saying, you know, we're going to throw them into everything. They're not like you saying, you know, I want to bite off more than I can chew and then, you know, chew my heart out. They are people going, oh, well, I imagine your life is just like, oh, good on you even being here in the supermarket by yourself. I know, but it isn't... Haven't we past that yet? Like, uh, well, I would hope that we are. Yeah. But it sounds not. like we're not. <laughs> I find some of the some of the funniest things as well is that when you're with other minorities, like when you are, you feel when you have a disability. It took me a while to realise, uh-huh. but I am part of a minority group, you know. Right. And, and there are some hard realities that this group have to deal with: with education, with with employment, with you know social stigma. There's a lot going on, right? There. But then, and when you sit down with other minority groups, they will also accept you as part of this, you know, whole thing. But then you realise that a lot of the time, even within the minority groups, they're sitting there going, well, could be worse. I could be that bloke. Right. You know, like that's the one common thing across community <laughs> is that people still, no matter how hard they have right. it, they look at disability and go, well, could be worse. Could be worse. <laughs> it's just, it blows me away. And I sit there and we sit there with friends and we're like, right. how the fuck can we change this? And I can't. Like, besides being out there and doing it. But we've had so many people with disabilities out there just smashing life up for, for decades, and it's still it's still kind of there. And it, I think that 
when we change community as in the funding for getting people with disabilities out into the community through things like the NDIS, if we don't alter community's idea of who we are, it's going to be, you know... But it, it is, without a doubt, the most effective way sadly not even sad it's sad that we have to meet somebody or know someone to feel, to feel that empathy that yeah. we should all just instinctively feel or right? normality or normality yeah. yeah no i think but yeah but I, empathy to fellow human beings i mean yeah, and yeah, the okay. example that i mean by this because I've, I've, I've talked about this before but the best thing that has ever been done to combat homophobia in uh like the in the country area where i grew up not that i would say it was a particularly just a place that didn't know a lot of gay people was one of the guys from that town and his boyfriend moving back there and opening the best cafe in town <laughs> right now everybody yeah. has their social events there everybody like they, yeah. they love gay people they, they, yeah. want, they want to import as many as they can you know? <laughs> I think so what we need more cripples opening up like corner stores well, that's what I'm saying yeah. you need a missionary program yeah, yeah, yeah. go and hit people where they really feel right. it no but it, it's, it's the equivalent of what the Chinese did when they first came over as immigrants they would go to every country town and open a Chinese restaurant yeah. now I'm not suggesting that people have to do that but it's what you're saying about the NDIS and integrating people more effectively into the workforce and stuff the more people see it and the more they understand it, yeah. The less, I mean, I choose to believe that mostly as human beings, we are good people if we have all the information. Now, okay. maybe that's wrong, maybe that's naive, but I choose to believe if we have all the information that most of us have the capacity to be good people. What I oh, think man. that I think that most of the prejudice comes from fear, fear or lack of knowledge. The amount of times when I hear somebody say something mean about someone, it's someone who. Now, you are reacting to this, so I want to know what you're thinking. There are some. I'm a white heterosexual man. I've never <laughs> experienced any type of discrimination at all. There are some pretty <laughs> ignorant, just terrible people, educated people. Right. Okay. Uh, education, education, I think, is, is crucial for yes. a lot of stuff. Um, but there are just some assholes out there sometimes. Yep. Okay, well, let's, let's fuck them off then. Yeah, I know. Wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? I, I, but, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that the world is genuinely good. Right. And I think that people are genuinely, they want to be, they want to be good to the people around them. And there are, there are exceptions to that. But I, I do think that genuinely, I think there are. Right. Okay, so I maybe will explore this idea a bit further, which is this. I think that if we... You know, the more we can integrate, and I mean with different religions, with like, you know, anything, like you said, any minority group that feels like they're not integrated into the society, yeah. the more that we have, you know, that integration, I think the more that for most people, yeah. the fear goes away, the prejudice goes oh, away, yeah, and it 100%. feels normal. Yeah, and 100%. then we can identify the ones who are just arseholes yeah, regardless and fuck them At the moment, it's hard to tell the real arseholes from the people who are just ignorant arseholes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, but, but then also, the, the thing that baffles me about this whole interaction with the disability community is that every single one of us are heading down that spectrum. Right. Like, eventually, what you've got, you're going to lose. That's that's the way life works, right? Like, I mean, know. it is very short-sighted, isn't it? Oh, I mean, man. this is nothing. Like, you know, but I to, just to, like, you re, I've got osteoarthritis in my hips. Yeah. So, for the last seven years, I just, like, you know, it makes it a little bit more difficult to travel and a little bit, but you're like, oh, right. Yeah, my body's falling apart, yeah. and it's not going to miraculously get better in my 50s. No, <laughs> no so, 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 but all, a lot of community are right. kind of dealing with those sorts of things. They've got their, their things going on, but then they still look at our community with 
with pity, and pity is the worst thing to have. Right, you know? which is a very interesting thing. Talk to me more about that because that's a that's a theme that comes up like right through the book. I, hate I think, pity. yeah. So. Tell me, I mean, I get why, but tell me why out loud so I can hear you say it. I feel like, uh, I feel like pity is just, it's like just rips down a human. Right. You know, it rips down their potential, it rips down their expectations. It if, For community, I think pity is just something that's harsh and right. that, that it can come from a well-meaning place, but it is just not healthy. Right. Yeah, I, 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 you go into places, and I've met guys whose whose life is extremely uncomfortable. You know, like the reality of their life is is going to be hard, but they live it. You know, and I don't. Somebody turns up, and because they got around differently, and and jumping back to jumping back to Africa for one sec, yeah. you turn up in this community, and you think that you like you think, oh no, I'm going to feel these little kids, and just want to grab them and take them home, and then you look at them, and you see the amount of love that they have for the people around them, right. the amount of love that's that their it's theirs, that's their place. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they're the people that if somebody needs something, who are going to be the people who are there to hopefully help them out and lift them up. Yeah. And, and how can I look at this kid, even though resources-wise he's struggling, you know, and he's got a, he's got a harsh kind of reality right. in, in front of him, but how can I look at him and pity him when, you know, you just you don't know what his result will be and you don't know whether he will be able to find happiness and love in that, in that kind of little corner. And so I just always, it always baffles me, this idea that anyone will sit above anyone else and look down upon them and say that I have it better than you. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting perspective and I don't think people, I think sometimes the reason that we don't act on internet, you know, when it comes to things like international aid or, you know, areas that do need is because people stop at pity. Like, I don't even mind if you start at pity. I don't even mind if your first reaction is pity, as long as it then moves to, you know, empathy and understanding yeah. and then also, like, actual realising that, you know, these are people. Yeah. It's, it was something interesting that came up. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut nah, you off. Nah, nah. Uh, something interesting that came up in when people were talking about uh, the yes all women and, you know, people were starting to really have an open conversation about, you know, uh, you know, what women were, like, you know, facing regularly in our society, you know, just in their general day-to-day. And I used to love this ad, that, which was one – I think the ad was one in four women will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Will it be your mother, your sister, your daughter or your wife or whatever? But <laughs> – Somebody said, it's even weird that we have to think of it like that. They're all humans. Do you know what I mean? That should be enough. Like, somebody shouldn't be sexually assaulted. Just that We should care because they're a human being. And I think that's sometimes what we do with, you know, African aid or whatever. We, we pity and then we don't move on to going, oh, yeah, and also they're just humans. I was just born in this country. I had nothing to do with my dogs trying to get involved. I told you that she would. Nice. <laughs> I have this thing with dogs, right? I, I think because they, she might have saw me get out of my chair and right. kind of clamber up something, but she probably also smells Albie. Right. <laughs> Your dog. My dog. On me yeah, too, yeah, that's probably what it is. Yeah, She's probably just jealous. Because it's got nothing to do with you being in the room. <laughs> <laughs> no, she knows that podcasting happens in here and she likes to get involved in the podcast. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think sometimes we stop, you know, like in our minds, we don't engage with the idea that these are 
people. It was very interesting to me, even in the week we're recording this, there was the uh, murder in the Charlie Hebdo, uh, the cartoonist, oh, yeah. that, right? Which is a terrible, terrible thing. But there was also the massive massacres in Africa and you're yeah. like... We don't pay as much attention. No, we don't. But, anyway, that, but, that's probably not the topic for now. But it's it is interesting to get what your thoughts were that and what your insights are into that. So, I think to uh, to kind of Wrap complete the complete yep. that story of why I end up in like Africa. Yeah, it's probably like every single step of the way, somebody was there and opened up a door for me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went through high school and I was crawling around and I was at my most vulnerable yep. and a teacher invited 10 wheelchairs out to the school and showed me power. Give me power back into my life, <laughs> right. you know? Exactly. And she was able to show me power through sport and even playing field and, you know, weakness in the people around me, you know? And, and just this understanding that I think is the reason why I love sport because it can pick, it can grab people and put them in a in a in a interaction with somebody and show them commonality and when I go into when you when you've been the beneficiary of so many people just doing those things for you I think there's a I think there's a sense of you you need to be able to do the same you have to you know like if and when we're going to those places like in Africa and, and you just even push into a, a room, people just eyes open, you know? Like, you, so in, in this one camp is in, um, uh, where was that? That was Nairobi. And it uh-huh. was, uh, the, uh, what was the, uh, uh, it's an education centre for kids in the slums there and they have 1,600 kids. And every every second Friday they bring in mothers of kids with disabilities. They give them flour so they can assess the, the kid with a the disability. They can give them physio. They can uh, give them one day of education because edu- if you're going to only educate one kid in your family, it's, it's not the kid with a disability. Uh-huh. And then you push in and they just are shocked and then they sit back and then you get out of your wheelchair, which I do immediately when I'm in those settings so that they know straight away that the, that that I am their kid. Yeah. You know, there is this level of vulnerability that you open up as soon as you get out of your chair yep. and it gets taken away that they just go, they, the, it, people just get taken back by it. And then they start to question and you're able to start to kind of just get to this idea that the difference between my son and their and, and their son and, and, and me isn't the wheelchair. Like, that makes a big difference, you know, like, but it's education. Like education has made me be able to feel confidence and feel feel like I can I can be a part of community. Like right. that that pathway through the the twelve years that you're educated is getting you ready to be a member of of the wider community. And I love that. And I've had people do the same thing for me all throughout my life. And I would be just an absolute dirtbag if I didn't try and find a way to do it to kind of pass that back on. I mean, people, there's a reward in it as well, though, isn't there? Yeah, for sure. This is the thing that I think that sometimes people don't understand. Like, sometimes, you know, I mean, God, this sounds like I'm boasting, but anyway, I'm just going to say it. Here it is. Sometimes people say nice things to me about the fact that I will help younger comedians or that we'll be there to... But I get as much out of those situations as they do. Like, people will say it as if I'm doing something, you know, helping somebody else. But people help me heaps. Yeah. And I like helping other people. Yeah. Like, you get a genuine sense of, like, joy and satisfaction out of helping other people. For sure. Isn't that part of... Isn't that 
like I would say that is more a part of living than anything physical that somebody can can have. Like if you are if you are living, you know, for me, living is getting in there, ripping, and then just genuinely feeling love and support for the people around you. And when you give help, you get this idea that I know that when we have the young kids coming through home and you see them want to do what what I'm doing and they want to be living this life and you're trying to do everything you can because when you see a young person trying to want something, I find that just infectious. It makes me it makes me want to continue to do what I'm doing. It makes me, you know, I guess grateful of where I'm at. It also, when you see them develop, you just get a sense of joy, you know? Like the idea that we're going to leave this place better than what we started with, I think, you know, that is also just, I think that's fundamental to, to, to life in general. Do you feel a responsibility, uh, you know, when you know, to these younger athletes to be a, like a, a role model to them, to like set a good example? Oh, uh, I don't know. I feel a responsibility. What's a good example? Like my. Well, that's. I mean, that's why I ask because yeah. I, I don't know what the answer to that question is. I feel like I have a responsibility to show them what's possible. Yeah. I don't feel like I need to. Like the good example. So my best example as a kid was seeing Jeff Adams, a Canadian wheelchair racer, who was just a rock star. You know, right. like he wasn't. He wasn't your go to bed at nine o'clock. You know, he wasn't your traditional right. athlete. He. He can kind of uh, just bashed up against every single stereotype that even I had had in my head about disability. And he was the best example, I think, that I could have ever had. And I, um, I think that I learned more from him. And if I can be him to one other kid, then success, right? But I don't right. think that is your traditional idea of what a good example is. I just think that that is so varied. That's good. See, that's a that's a better answer than I was hoping for. <laughs> Sometimes you just ask the questions in the hope. So, you, uh, so um, let's let's go back then to when you're first introduced to like uh, wheelchair sport. Like, yeah, yeah, because sport is such a has been obviously such a through line of your life. Even though it's not the only thing I want to talk to you about, yeah. but it's been such a through line to your life. Yes. So talk us just talk us through that. So it was at that time where everything was well. I was standing out the most. My teacher brought out brought out um, wheelchairs. I had that day. Um, I then just couldn't stop talking about it. I'd I'd then seen seen or actually I think it was in the month previous I'd seen wheelchair racing on the television. Um, I didn't really even could barely even figure out that that was my my people. Right. Right. And then. And then when they showed it to me, my community decided that they were, they knew that I wasn't going to be able to afford a wheelchair. Right. You know, they just, and within two weeks, 200 people raised $10,000. And my mum and dad tried to stop them and they said, uh, stay out of it, stay out of it. It's it's between us and the boy. Right. And um, they give me this wheelchair. They, they, they paid for a racing wheelchair to come out and I owned my own racing chair and and then they bought me a ticket because they only had enough for one person. Right. They bought me a ticket to uh, Colorado, and I was, I'd say, I would have just turned fourteen. And my mum drove me down to Sydney, and she put me on a plane. And and you had you been on a plane at that stage? No way! Right? <laughs> <laughs> no way! Uh, but there was just there was this really um, you couldn't fly out of the Karkor International Airport. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was barely. We had gravel roads, right. you know. Like it was, you, yeah. if it rained, you couldn't drive out of car. 
Um, I made it down there, and then it was such a naivety. You know, uh-huh. you just bounced around this whole thing happening around you. Almost. But it comes back to this idea of that you must have, you know, even at that stage, had that attitude, I'm, I'm going to throw myself into this. Oh, because there. for anyone at 14 years of age, getting on a plane to overseas to do anything is a terrifying, <laughs> like, you know, no. particularly if it's the first time that you're getting on a plane, the first time that you're travelling overseas and you're 14 years old, in any situation is terrifying, right? When I look back on it, I had this... Such a naive, hopeful kind of view of the whole thing. Like, oh, okay, I'm going to sit on a plane. It'll be 14 hours. I'll land in another place. And, and even in that one trip, we had we had um, John Bobbitt on the plane with us. Right. And I sat, <laughs> yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, how's this John Bobbitt? You know, and he, he had just finished making one of his movies out of Melbourne or whatever. And he signed I think that. if there's a guy that all of us can feel a little pity for, oh. it's the guy who had his oh. penis cut off. Yeah. <laughs> if we're going to pity anyone. You know what? I probably did feel that. I've kind of went, you know what? I'm going to make an exception for this. But I think his thing was that, oh, yeah, I feel like I'm, um, I need to prove myself to the world. So right. I come out here and he made his. He porn uh, movies, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that is, I guess, taking it head on to want to use a better term. But it is. It's well, like making your weakness your oh, strength. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if someone would have told me today that I would have brought that story up, I would have laughed. Um, but that just opened the door for me. I landed, right. I landed then in Colorado and there were 500 people with disabilities, kids. With disabilities, and I just tell me what that's it. like. That first time that you, because that's obviously that where you've seen it on that scale. What's what? Yeah, what is that like? I just for you? didn't. It's it's so um, it's so empowering, uh, and you, right. you. I'd started to feel so a little bit isolated, and and when you can't play these sports, and you did realize that you were different, and that there was this 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 idea that you know um, everyone else is going to progress, and I'm going to stay the way that I am and then I just I started to see you literally kids. just described my high school sports career <laughs> <laughs> I was very tall when I was in year 8 so I dominated yeah. but then everybody else progressed and yeah. I stayed in the same place yeah well I reckon I honestly believe everyone finds themselves at that point right like even right. you're gonna get to the point and you're just like holy shit you know like it just it, the insecurities parts of it anyway and that's interesting. Do you, um, and we'll, we'll, you know, I'd like to skip around. Uh, we'll get back to Colorado in a second, but I'm just interested in that. You, you touched on something I'm interested in in your life, which is you have been the very, very best at what you did. Is there a point that you feel I'm, like, has this point come or is it still ahead of you or do you think it will never come? Because it's got to be just through the ravages of age and time and, and whatever, a point where you know, you're not as good as you used to be? Or does there not have to be? Well, I'm completely different to what I was in, say, 2004. I was the most aggressive, the, like, most powerful. Um, you, you just raced a race with such a, such a you know, you, you knew your strengths and they were, they were very good back then. They were dominant, you know, in 2004. I am so much stronger now. I'm so much smarter. Not 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 as powerful. Right. I don't have the same. I, I, I can't go out and do, you know, 40K and bounce, bounce, get the next day, you know. My body is starting to, you know, fatigue. And, but you've just got to figure out what strengths you have right now and you make them as strong as they can possibly be. And 
I would hope that I will continue to be able to mix it with racing for another four years maybe but you just change every year you feel like a different athlete because you've built up this one thing and that's became your major focus and I'm still getting faster like my marathon times are still reducing so like it's still there and but there will come a point where I know that I'm done and that's you know at that time I'll I will continue to run but I'll just stop wanting to be the best and I will stop um I will stop the intensity in training as well like training I love it absolutely love it but it just wrecks life sometimes right you know <laughs> it's I'm serious right. like you are just ruined yeah and you're trying to hold a conversation when you're doing your best training and like my wife I, if if I'm leading into a Paralympics for the six months I go a bit vacant because everything you have is is into this into the sport everything is just put into your physical kind of recovery and just trying to uh, trying to do this one thing at this one level and that's like I know I'll only do one more Paralympics at that level because I don't want to be like that around my kid. You know, I want to I want to soak in him and I want to, you know, be present and be a part of that whole thing and I don't know whether I could I could do it. I can do it one more time because I also want him to see and be a part of that that whole um, it's, it's an incredible world when you're there because it's like even the levels of pain that you can go through sometimes are a little bit exhilarating. Like you kind of feel like you're living a bit on the edge because you just you 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 you're running this life of this fine line between ruining yourself and making yourself awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know that you can you can fall off either side. Yeah, you know. But, and is that part of the thrill for you? Oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. And then you get there and. If you have fell off the side, the idea of trying to be the best at that day, it's just never going to happen. But if you nail it and you sit there and you are then building in the confidence and you're telling yourself and you're trying to really build up this persona and this person that you think you need to be to win at that period of time and then it works out, like that moment is just sensational. That's why people will give up a decade of their life because when they're there and you feel like you just... You, you're bringing everyone with you. And you see that just this massive just joy in everybody's faces. And, and, and you mean like mum, your mum, your dad, your, your, you know, for me, everybody is that tight little world that you have, right? Okay, so uh, there's just so many things I want to talk to you about. But let's just focus on this area of, you know, because we've skipped to the end and let's, you know, let's deal with it while we're here and then we can go back. Because... You are a person who clearly, you know, has always wanted to, you know, challenge yourself and throw yourself into things. I was wondering when I was reading the book about how you would deal with, you know, in your profession, like as in like in, you know, racing, like the, you know, the, the point where, you know, it finishes, but it feels like you've already thought about it and are, are starting to prepare yourself you know, for, for that? Did you think that it would be hard? Like, I mean, when did you start thinking about the idea that I have to start in my head acknowledging that at some point, you know, this period of it, like it is right now, will be over? Jeez, uh, when did, it's been a couple of years, really, where I've known that it's not going to last forever, right. you know, and, and that where I've started to see people do it well and see people do it not so well. And... I think that I've been fortunate that life's been expanding along with the career. So while racing has been just 
it's been awesome and growing and, and building. So has these kind of outside of racing things. And they've they've become so big sometimes that it feels like if you if I took racing out of my life right now, I'd still feel like I'm Right, I'd still be flat out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. but but that's been actually like something that I went out of my way to do because like I wanted balance and for so I've been racing now for twenty years and for fifteen of them all I wanted to do was be the best and all I wanted to do was this one particular part of that whole thing and and then now I started to think okay well I've got a what was the point you know what was the point of doing that. I need to finish with the idea that I can utilise that 20 years for something that's that's a bit more. And, you know, that's when I think I I think I um I met Stella young at a at a really good point in in that whole thing as well. Because I met her and she just man, if, it's really hard that one person can make such a massive difference. Like we said, a mm-hmm. teacher. Like Stella just changed the way that I looked at everything, you know? like. She- and, well, I guess this comes to the, the point we've made a few times already now, which is not only the idea that it has to be a teacher, but anyone can be a teacher. Well, any- If someone's willing to take the time, anyone can be a teacher. Yeah. Well, anyone can contribute to the people around them. Right. And that's what, like, a teacher's... A teacher's job is about engaging and contributing and creating and assisting to to create somebody or to bridge somebody from those ratty little teenage years right. to, <laughs> to like society. Right. Well, that's basically what we do as a society, though. We go, look, uh, here are these things that we made. Uh, They're at their worst right now. Please don't fuck them up. (laughs) Yeah, that's I feel like that's the role of a father, right? Like, just just try not to fuck him up. You know, like, I've I've got a a nine month old at home now, and it's, you know, when I, it's the, there's a shitload of, shitload of, um, I don't know whether it's, Pressure. It's it's a, it's an awesome pressure. Right. And I think back to my old man when he's holding me, and he's not really understanding what my life is going to be. And then he's made that commitment to making sure whatever it is, he's gonna he's gonna make sure that there is always kind of this loving arms and this and that. And like it's it's a it's a hell of a thing. But then a teacher has that same role. Like they have thirty kids come into their their, their classroom for twelve months, and they they can't just be trying to do the, you know, the the one to a hundred mark. They can't be, because otherwise we would have a we'd have a machine out the front and they would be doing it. You know, they would be doing it there and they would be sending the results back and and it's finished. The teacher needs to get there and care. And, and my favourite teacher, the same one that invited the the kids out to my school, she's told me when I was in year twelve, and I was stressing out because of I was juggling. You know, mm-hmm. like I just felt like I was, I was juggling life and and sport and and education and and she said that, uh, just, you know, when you finish, you don't have to follow the path that that you believe the people want you to take, like the university things, and because, um, I think because mum and dad they were adamant they didn't go through further education, they were just adamant that we all were and. My teacher said that I am so much more than a HSC mark. I'm so much more than a than a than a you know naught to one hundred. The the work ethic in you is the most important thing about you, and that that if you want something, you will get it because that's who you are. 
and, and just being told that, you know, as a kid, ah, geez, it's just such a positive thing. And if you could create, if you could leave, get, get 50, 10 kids in their lifetime to leave a classroom believing in themselves that they are that they are strong, that they are resilient, that they can be whoever want, they want to be. You know, you've done a pretty good job as a teacher, right? How do you, how do we, and this is a big question and you don't have to have all the answers, but how do we ensure that more kids get that message? Because I couldn't agree with you more. I think particularly in this modern day world where 50% of the jobs or more that people will have, you know, who are at school now will have when they graduate haven't even been thought of yet, haven't been invented yet. So the idea that we you know, have to teach people to train them for these specific, it's a very old school idea. Of course, you know, inspiring people to go, what are you passionate about? Make that your, your work is the way of the future. But how do we get that message? How do we change the education system or in, not, or you know, make sure that that is what the, the message that kids are getting? See, I love PDHPE. I love the, the, the course. That's what I teach. Uh-huh. Uh, even though I teach, well, I've probably done 30 days in 10 years. You know, right. like, but, but that has the potential yeah. to teach things like resilience. And I, I think kids also should be told repetitively that they, can, they, have, they have power in their life. That they can choose to be who they want to be. That that, and I don't know how you how you do that on a main, you know, on a massive scale. Besides, maybe maybe going to the source of teachers and including empowering in empowering through we're engaging in students in the actual degree. But they kind of they kind of teach that anyway when you're going through that that. Your ability to, especially in PDHPE, your ability to draw on life and put it into the the um, uh, the content of what you're talking is is a pretty big part of that. So, uh, rank them in, rank these in order, and you know, and this is only just for fun. But rank these in order. What's more terrifying, uh, having a baby and realizing that you have someone that you have to look after and raise for the rest of your life, uh, being on the start line at the marathon at the Olympics. Or um, facing a class of thirty teenagers that you're trying to, <laughs> you know what? Thirty year seven is kids. Right. Like I know that people say that. Ah, oh, year seven, they're just so little, they're fine. You know, you know what's terrible when you're when you're at the height of a year class of right. year seven kids. It's terrible. Like a chihuahua's, you know, it's a chihuahua. Right. You lie down on the ground with the chihuahua. <laughs> you know that thing just gets in your face. <laughs> I find that that is. That is hard, hard, yakka. But uh, by far the fatherhood thing. Yeah. It's a whole different thing, isn't it? It's, was it something that you always wanted to do? Were you always a person that you thought, I will, you know, I'd like to have a kid at some stage? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. There, there was – I, I never really I never really thought about it a lot. Right. Um, but when I, when I got married, it was like overnight. And that's probably – I don't know – I never really wanted to get married. Right. And then just one night, I'd been with Sheridan for like seven years. And and how did you guys meet, for people that don't know? Uh, we met, um, we ran into each other. She was in, she was from the Big Smoke Baptist. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Big city girl, mate. Big city girl, yeah. <laughs> La-dee-da. Um, and we ran into each other through one, she's three years younger than me. I kind of, I visited a school a few yeah. times and... Um, but we ran into each other while we were studying and that's where we got to know each other and started dating and, and then continued, you know, once we left. 
Um, How big a part uh, in your life, you know, does has that relationship played and like you know does love play how do you how important do you think it is to us as as human beings like you know what percentage you know not i mean i don't need exact but like you know in your life and what you have how vital is that relationship family, family and family is everything yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. if i would if i would look back and if i want to be remembered as anything i want to be remembered as a, a pretty good son and a brother and a you know, a husband and, and hopefully is a pretty good dad, you know. Like that, by far, remove everything else. If I'm successful at that, then I've won. Right. Yeah. Everything else has been has been awesome, but at the end of the day, that's that's the, the, the that's my life. Um, let's have a pause there because I need a bathroom break, yeah. but I want to talk to you more about other things. So let's uh, have a quick pause. Okay, we had a bathroom break. It's good. We, I think we needed that. We both, we both needed it. I don't want to think it was just me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like people who listen to the podcast to think that I'm like the weak-bleded host. Mate, I would, have been, I would have been heroic and kind of worked through it. But, yeah, uh, well, because you're a hero, mate, and, yeah. I, and I'm <laughs> just, not. I'm just, just ask me. I'm just, the guy, I'm, just, I'm just the guy who interviews heroes in my uh, little office out the back of my house. No, I don't, I don't agree. Yeah, you know, it has been... One of the one of the, one of the best things is about when you when you're doing what we're doing in Australia is that we have such a small community. Right. Like you just get to see people progress and turn into who they're turning into. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, because we don't know each other well, but no. we've bumped into each other for probably a decade. Yeah. And and I've certainly you know been very aware of you like for well you know at least a decade and it's. It's one of those things, so it's nice to have like a you know a chance to actually have a proper catch up and like you know have a chat and stuff as well, which is great. But it was also fascinating for me to read the book. So I want a couple of things that we hadn't finished there that I want to remind. Is gonna I think she just wants to come in and sit on my lap, so we might let her do that, and then she won't bark <laughs> outside the door. Come on, all right, up up. No, you got to come over here. Come on, come here. I know that you love Kurt more than you love me, but come on. All right, so uh, Stella Young, we, we we briefly mentioned that you ran into her and you became friendly with her. And but what 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 did you want to say about Stella? What was it that you know meeting her at the right time? Why was that a good thing for you? Uh, she made me a lot more aware, a lot more, um, a lot more just just conscious of what how how we refer to disability and community, and that we can you know that that when I was wandering into rooms and not quite knowing. What I was doing. By the way, in case people think that I'm uh, really sexually turned on by the way you're talking about this, that's just the dog puffing on my lap. Yeah, that could have actually. This podcast has suddenly got a little saucy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, it was it was just at a period of time where I think I was I was starting to just wonder what it is that I was doing, and then and then I just I was able to meet her and talk to her about her experience with disability and it was so different to mine that it just made me assess my own kind of thing and it made me realize that that we are part of a bigger community and that 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 we have this responsibility to to educate along the way and to um yeah i i think the biggest thing that stella brought to my to my life was hope uh-huh. Like this real idea that that we were going to get somewhere, uh-huh. that all these small frustrations that you feel in life, um, well, 
through through the the you know the 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 view of disability that that we were un- we were actually going to make progress and right. and that I don't know she she just bought a, a greater purpose and I know that for the first time I think ever um, when we lost her I kind of felt defeat right and I hate. I know that there are there are hundreds of other disability people with disability advocating, but she was just so unique. She did it in such an intelligent way. She she also she called me on my bullshit a lot of the time. And what is your bullshit? Uh, you know what? I sometimes even don't, sometimes you, you you finish something and you just question how full of shit am I? Right. <laughs> <laughs> What was it that I just said? You try and go into this thing, and you try and be really open, and you're trying to, and, and you're trying to get across your emotion or what you're feeling or what you're thinking. But it sometimes it just is like oh, I just missed the mark, you know. And and Stella would say, Stella would call me on the, you know, like just the um, the idea that you can't ignore disability that you've got to be proud with disability that it doesn't you know you can't just be super cripple you need to you need to be just human this uh brings me and again we're, we're jumping all over the place but people uh if they want to read the 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 book if they want to get a narrative version they can read the book it's a great book and i really highly recommend it i want to talk to you about the things that i know and that i'm interested in and i think that we've kind of stumbled into this area because i think something that was really a big deal for you was when you came back from kokoda but we, i think it's hard to tell that story without us talking about kokoda first so We'll skip over all like the sporting stuff, and we'll come back to that. Let's talk about why you decided that you wanted to do Kokoda. The Kokoda Trail is that the correct way to say the Kokoda Trail? Some people, people say track, right? Some as people well. say track. Some people say trail. Okay. I say I say track. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Uh, the Kokoda Track, notoriously like a thing that professional sports people, the Hawthorne Football Club, for example, are very famously went there, and these are you know the premium athletes you know of their generation, and this is a you know a journey along this this track that can bring those people, you know, to their knees, like really kind of, you know, destroy people both physically, but also emotionally, you know, it's a, it's a massive, massive challenge. Like what, what, why did you want to do it? Uh, there are a thousand crazy things that I want to do. You know, there's, there's mountains out there and stuff that would be like, I wonder what's, wonder what's on, what it's like up there, you know, but the, like here, but with a better view. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd, I'd imagine. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, probably not. <laughs> just, look, just look, just look out the window of your plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I love that. Like, yeah. I seriously love the idea of just thinking. You must have known though, even because you're not a, a stupid guy. No, you must well, know when you say yes to this that you have just. There's no way it goes great. Terrifying. Do you know what I mean? Like, you must know immediately, I've just said yes to something that yeah. will be extremely hard for me to do and I'm not even sure that I can do. How do you yeah. say yes to something like that? Uh, I was with all of my family. Um, it was brought up between me and my two brothers immediately uh, at the, the loss of a family member and that we all needed time together. Like, we grew up in that tiny town that yep. we lived in each other's pockets that we... Um, that we, um, we we had each other to rely on always. And uh, when we lost the, the, a family member, he passed away with Beyond Blue wristband on his wrist. And, you know, I personally didn't didn't know that he had had um, his tussles with 
depression over a long period of time and um right because it's because again talking about you know people who have to feel marginalized by society or keep their illness quiet like depression definitely falls into that category it's not a thing that people still feel comfortable with talking about and you know both of us being country kids like the rates of you know suicide in the country you know farmers my parents and my brother is a farmer and like so i'm hyper aware of the fact that the majority of young men who are killing themselves in australia are farmers it's harsh it's it's one of our harshest one of our harshest i guess cultural things is that you need to portray invulnerability right especially in the in blokes like it's and it's it's unnecessary right but i must i think that and maybe i'm projecting here but i imagine that it's even more complex for you in a way which is that being able to accept being because in some ways like you know you've just done a lot of in your life just proving that you're invulnerable do you know what i mean like to then let it down and sort of go but i'm also vulnerable as well it doesn't so it never feels like that like everything that i do i feel extremely vulnerable while i okay, do it interesting yeah and and I, and you're aware of that vulnerability at the time? Yes, yes. And how do you channel that in a positive way into what you do rather than let it overwhelm you? So I used to get terrible nerves. I would be... My first Paralympics, I remember sitting in lane eight and the, the stadium being filled out and I was 19 years old and they said, representing Australia, Kurt Fernley, I could have thrown up. I would have thrown up in the hours leading up to it. I just had so much fear. Right. Um, from then on, I reminded myself that I loved this fear and I loved those nerves and I reminded myself every single time I felt them that this was this was living feeling this meant that it meant something did Um, the fear and the nerves ever go away or is it just that you get better at like you know recognizing them and sort of you know channeling them in a positive way they're still there right I still feel them and though now I get excitement uh-huh. When I feel them, that I know that this thing means something, and it makes me know that there's something coming up that's important. And you, you know, it's game time. Awesome! This is the living. You know, um, it's interesting because I've been terrible to live with the last couple of weeks because I'm a week away, well, less than a week away when we're recording this. Four days away from recording the. F- it's the final line of my tour. I've been doing this tour for an entire year. It's all that I've been thinking about and doing for a year. Yeah. And then, like, we're recording it all on the final night, and I've done it. More times, you know, like this is the most qualified to ever do it that I've ever been. Do you know what I mean? I've <laughs> yeah, thought yeah, about yeah. it more. I've tried it more. I'm ready to go. And I have been a nightmare because all I can do is think about it and like, you know, you know, put it through my head. And like you said, like I don't think that I feel nervous, but I am clearly nervous. Yeah. You know, I, I'm excited, but I'm nervous all at the same time. Well, whenever I feel that, I will, I will, sometimes I actually need to hear it and I need to look in the mirror and be like, I fucking love this right and then now when i really feel those nerves i really do just love it like i associate that with such positive fear not fear i associate nerves and butterflies and stomach with with such big moments in my life that now it's a really it's a really positive thing Tell me uh, one thing that I've been trying to do a lot more of in regard to these situations and tell me what your thoughts are on this is remind myself that I chose this. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Like, here. I put myself here. Yeah. This is all... I didn't have to be doing this. Yeah. <laughs> I booked the room. I suggested the thing. I Like, this is all what I wanted. I had to do that quite a bit on... Not on the... Well, a little bit on the track. Definitely on the Sydney to Hobart. Right. That it's like... You know, seas are chopping up, you're crawling through vomit, you're, you know, like... You- that was, 
I, I'm, uh, I think they call it a metaphobic, which means I'm a sympathetic vomiter, which uh. means that if I see someone else vomit, that I need to vomit. But even on television, if like someone's vomiting on South Park, I have to look away. <laughs> because even when I was reading your book, when you are talking about sliding through the vomit on the Sydney to Hobart, I was like, it was almost making me want to vomit. It, it was, uh, it was such, it was. Was that harder than you thought it was going to be? I knew it was going to be hard. I knew that this thing was, it was just so different hard, uh-huh. you know, like it was a, it was a thousand cuts hard, you know, it's not like hard as in, uh, you know, take your bruises. It's, it's hard as in you're crawling through vomit. You're, you're, you're not sleeping every time. you. It's relentless. It, it's relentless. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you did, I did remind myself a number of times where you're feeling the seasickness, you're doing this, that I chose, I chose my path. Like this is. This is here. I'm doing it because I wanted to do it and try and make the bloody best out of it, right? Right. Um, Kokoda, on that night, my brother said he was interested in doing it um, and maybe doing it, you know, for Beyond Blue. That interests me in a lot of ways because there's a couple of things, which is obviously the loss of a family member and the family deciding that they wanted to make some meaning out of that yeah right but the second thing is that you decided that you wanted to do something as a as a family which i think i love my family like i think they're great but i really don't see them that often i went home for christmas i saw all the kids i had a ball yeah but i think that we get older and we kind of just drift about our own lives and you guys made a conscious effort to be like we're going to reconnect and do something together like go through a struggle together yeah yeah, well, I think that sometimes you really have to make an effort to create a memory. Right. You know, we we will forever sit down and talk about what happened on that track. Right. And that is going to be one of my most treasured memories forever. And as soon as I said I was interested, my other brother said, let's do it. I mentioned it to the other, my other cousins and they all were just locked in and every single person just jumped in and... Then we still had 18 months and I still had a Paralympics between right. making it a reality. And um, But I just, once you committed and once you said you were going to do it, it, there was so much fear. But I um, found the right guy, Wayne Wayne Weatherall, who I'd been through a few people who just said, that's ridiculous, and I bugger off. Where Wayne had just seen me race. He uh, jumped on a flight down to Newcastle and he went for a crawl with me. And, well, he walked alongside me while right. we just you know, did four or five hours crawling and he just said, yeah, this is possible. Like, let's smash it out. And the whole thing was never about me dragging myself every metre. Like, I I grew up knowing that I could look to my family and friends and ask for help, that I grew up knowing that knowing that I was part of a of a tribe, you know, that I was part of this group where we were all, we were all open. Well, it felt like... But, we all were all open. We were all able to talk about things, and we were all able to ask for help. But some of my closest family, they didn't feel that same ability. And I don't know. It was just like I want to be. I want to have another run at it, and I kind of want to tell everyone how much I I love them and appreciate them, and that that we we can be a part of this thing, and we'll forever remember it. And it was massive. The idea of asking for help was one of the, I guess, surprising parts of the story. You know, when I when you hear about you doing Kokoda, and I guess it's like you were saying before about being able to show your vulnerabilities, is 
you were doing it in honor of like the idea of saying it's okay to ask for help. Mm. And it was one of the more powerful things where, where you would just go, let me do this much. And then, yeah, okay, well, maybe I will need some help. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, I, I just think that's a powerful thing, you know, like being able to look and being able to be aware when you need help and, and to turn to somebody and ask for that, that help is, it saves lives. And, you know, since since that's happened, I've had some since the books came out. I've had some intense, intense interactions. You know, really, 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 just, you know, holy shit. You know, but I think that that sometimes is just the first step where somebody will reach out to me and right. say that I think about, I think about killing myself, or I think about, you know, that's just really harsh stuff. I am amazed at the amount of emails I get from people because I think the podcast feels very intimate to people, yeah. and they get to know me, and they get, and people will write me the most incredible stories. Yeah. And I do get the feeling sometimes it's like it's the first time they're sharing it with any detail, and it's kind of a safe space because yeah. they don't really know me. Isn't but but they you know they they feel like they want to be able to say something, and it is it's it, like I mean it's a very I mean it's a very very powerful thing. Well, when you share. When you share, which is what you you do, right? Like you share a part of yourself in this. I think that it creates this idea that 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 people are people are, are feeling what you were sharing, and they would like to share back, right? And that's just the the way that it goes, you know. And and the more that you share, and the more personal stories that you share, the more personal stories come back at you. Well, I think that like part of the problem that we have in our society is that we all. All the things that we are most ashamed of or terrified about or whatever are things that the majority of people are feeling as well. Yeah. But we're also ashamed to say them out loud. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. on a very much a crass level, I always find it weird when an audience, like, if you tell a masturbation joke on stage and the audience will ooh at that. And I'm like, <laughs> of all the things I've talked about tonight, literally of anything I've talked about, that's probably the one thing that most people in this room have some experience of and you're ooing that. The thing we all do. Will you ooh when I talk about breathing? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Isn't it? But it... Maybe it's the one thing that is so real that they're like, oh. But I, I imagine you encounter it when people talk to you about disability, like in that way that you that people, you know, think. I mean, I'm sure. Well, I don't know. Tell me, but I get from having read the book and I get from having known you that you prefer people just like ask or talk or be straightforward about these sort of things. But I imagine there's this, I don't know, there's this level of shame or vulnerability that people will say the wrong thing that makes them actually say the wrong thing. Yeah, Is that- yeah. The level of the level of caution around you, like you're a, a fragile little bunny, right? Like they, right. like you've never heard somebody ask that question right. before. <laughs> <laughs> he, might, he might not have noticed. <laughs> <laughs> don't mention the wheelchair. <laughs> It's it's the most common thing in my world, and yeah. and it's and it's not a shameful thing. Like right. there's a level there's a and people don't don't really get it sometimes, but I find that there's a level of beauty with disability. Like there is a level of there's a level of it's showing what life's what life is. You know, it makes you question what life is, and that's when I look at those people and I see that they are they are finding themselves like their life is better because. They can walk from A to B. Like, I just, there is so much more to life than that. And I think disability shows us. 
Right. There, but there is an interest there is an interesting shift and you comment about this in the book about particularly the London Olympics. Yeah. And how you know, and I agree with you. I mean, I mean, there was that amazing, you know, advertisement they were playing the one to the. Uh, it was like um, a public enemy, right? It was yeah. the? It was a public enemy song, and like just this amazing. And it was one of the first times, genuinely, that you know, disability was presented just in a. Like as in like, look at this. Look at how amazing and brilliant and beautiful and poetic and insp- like inspiring in the right way, not in a patronizing S- way. You know, yeah, strength. Yeah. Right. That's what I felt when I watched that. I just saw strength. It was amazing. Oh man, I like, loved that. I still ad. even thinking about that ad, I get little yeah like shivers. Like yeah. if people haven't seen it, yeah. I-, I wish I could. Do you know what it's called? No. Anyway, people. If they uh, if you Google twenty twelve. Superhumans. 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 20, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. We played it on Gruen. It's just an amazing... Yeah. And you can never hear that song again either without just like feeling fantastic. But there was, there was a shift around London in particular, wasn't there, in the public perception and in the way those Olympics were, you know... I, I mean, I, it really felt different. It did. For me, it felt like the first time that we understood who we were, that we didn't shy away from disability. We actually sold it, you know. Right. That we we went, you know, the one here it is, and it's it's awesome. Right. You know, don't don't feel like you can't look at the you know the the missing limb or whatever. Right. <laughs> but look at how amazing everything is. Like shit is just working there. Right. And these guys are just ripping life to pieces. And I remember when that commercial came out, Stella called me and she's like, why the, f- you you know, why the hell is it this superhuman thing? Because she was like, she hated the idea of disability being super crippled. Right. Like, yep. Because this disability has some harsh realities to it. Right. And I was just, I just said, please just let us have this one. You know, able-bodied athletes get held up and get told that this is superhuman every day of the week. Just let us have this win. Yeah, we, that's right. We need it. Yeah, this is. Yeah. yeah, it's it's the same as LeBron's new ad for Cleveland. You exactly. know, in the basketball. That's what it is. Mate, I find disability still is is seems a bit taboo in advertising. Yeah. You know, like how, like I think, like with sponsorship. You, you you always find yourself in this one little room and then everyone just looks at each other and goes, don't know how. Too hard. London didn't get that. London, London had it everywhere. Right. You know, like it had disability on billboards, on TV commercials. Disability was just everywhere and that was the first time that i had really seen that just sold in a way that was a that was a positive way that that like sainsbury's is it the shopping center yep. they smashed it and they they put a heavy chunk of financial support into it bp also did but they probably had some things right. <laughs> they, they had some it was a, it was a good time to hit bp yeah, up for yeah, some uh, public relations money it was uh, you know that the motives still... hey guys yeah well you know what the money still spends the same it does mate and, <laughs> and you know what if they're destroying the world on one hand they can give back a little bit on the other hand um, right and i will never that's one thing that i will never the disability gets um, sold in certain ways and and guys with disabilities make their income through through well, you know, ways that people can kind of, oh, from the disability community. But at the end of the day, we've, still got, we've got to pay, pay, pay mortgages. Right? right. There is a certain reality to disability that is expensive. And that's like at right. the end of the day, is that uh, Tyrion, Tywin, Tyrion Lannister. Yeah. You know, if you're going to be a cripple, you'd better be a rich one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I do say cripple, and I do say I do. I have referred to it a few times in the podcast. Yeah, I got a lot of strength through using that as a kid. Um, I still I hate seeing able-bodied jerks use it. And- well, I mean, but isn't that just isn't this the case? And I look in comedy. Obviously, these are things that get talked about all the time. You know, it's a world where you know the idea of like telling anyone what they can and can't say is taboo to our community. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. but I also like I subscribe to the idea that if a black person wants to use the N word, then go ahead. Yeah, like you've got your history and your like you know you're allowed to. That's your word. It is. And if you want to use it and reclaim it or use it in whatever way you want to use it then that is totally fine with me. It's not my business. But it doesn't mean... Like, I won't even sing along out loud to Eminem songs. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't, even, I can't even say the word. Like, I can't right. even say it, even when I'm trying... So I saw, just the other day, um, Dicko used Cripple in, a, in an ABC show. Oh, okay, yeah. And I just... I, I, would he sit there and say the N-word? Right. But... Well, the- but the one that comes up a lot, and look, my language has changed over the years as well. For example, I try not to say the C word anymore, the other C word, not your C word. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> it's nice to have a conversation where I have to point out the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because just because it's not really my word to use, yes. even though I'm a person, I, I will use it occasionally, but I normally qualify it by saying I don't usually use it. But the. The big one for me is a word that my friends would use all the time. And I I don't know if I've used it over the years. I hope that I never really did. But I certainly now also feel just really uncomfortable when my friends say it. And they say it casually, which is retard. Retard has become oh. such a... It's become such a modern, like, hip sort of word to use. Like, oh, that's retarded. Or he's a... Re-. And you're like, I just don't... Like, can we stop? Aren't we better than that in 2015 to be... Like, there's just other words. Can't we find other words? You know what? I just... I know. I'd live... I, I think I must live a pretty sheltered... Because I just don't don't hear it. Right. And it does make me Well, cringe. I would like to think that I wouldn't hear it yeah, either, yeah, you know? Yeah. That's why I guess it surprises me. Like, I've had people, not on this podcast, but on my other podcasts, particularly Americans, I think. I think for whatever reason in America, that is a word that became, you know, a well-used word yeah. and every time someone drops it I'm like what the fuck is going on <laughs> um, we're doing a podcast it can't be 1970 yeah, you know that like- <laughs> you know, America has been so good to me right like right. it has just been a big part of my well, career too, has come yeah. out of the US and you think that it's just going to be like the Americans say to me I thought Australia was just going to be like America light right. you know like just a just a little version of but there are so many differences uh, like over there it's just it's such a different culture, and and they get disability on a completely different level. Like they, so they, what? What do you mean by that? Explain what you mean. So I don't think they get disability um, socially as well as what we do, mm-hmm. um, as in in conversation. Like because again, I, my world is Newcastle. We're very upfront, very very kind of muck around and and open. And I don't think disability is open over there. But they have the right. They do policy better than what we do. They actually protect their... They give power to people with disabilities, as in a Disability Transport Act, a, a disability persons, like as, as in they legislate things so that we have power and not everybody else. Brings us uh, back to the thing that we got talking about, and we'll get back to Kokoda. We're all over the place. It's like an episode of Lost. But, <laughs> but that very point you're making, it brings us back to uh, what I wanted to talk about, which was post-Kokoda. Now, yeah. people have got the idea. You've done Kokoda. We'll get back to that. But... You then get back to Australia yeah. and somebody, you are at an airport. And I see, I remember when this happened. 
like I we I didn't talk to you about it at the time or even anywhere near it. But I remember reading about this in the paper when it happened, and I remember the kind of backlash that you talk about in the book. But talk talk us talk the audience through what happened. So and- I'd just been eleven days crawling through the jungles, right? Yep. And you're just dragging yourself through mud. And, you know, I was, you know, just such an emotional period of time. I'd went from 53 kilos immediately post New York Marathon to 46. I was done. The The levels that I saw disability on that track were, were, were harsh, like people being dragged into, dragged in front of me in wheelbarrows. And people, like, were even upset that you were, doing it People in some ways weren't they for me to stop they would just be like we they they couldn't compute the idea of disability and you know pain like the idea that somebody wants to drag themselves through this disability was something that was sheltered like disability even was told to me before i started crawling by a, a, a guy from port moresby he was like disability will be just kept inside and loved and supported as much as possible but the idea that people with disabilities want to be part of community isn't fully accepted or understood and when i was going through there you could see just this holy there was the holy shit factor and you know when i got back home and i'm flying into brisbane airport and i go out of my way not to say the airline because this is more than an airline yeah. uh, and in an in, in, in industry a business will operate in the field of play that they're allowed to operate in yeah exactly that's just right. the way it is if they're given a, a sports field they will play within the rules and those rules you know are the things that govern the way that they can run. Right. And I remember pulling up and we had a couple of hours before the plane was meant to take off and it was just said that you need to check your wheelchair in as baggage at the thing. And they would put me on this seat and they would push me and then wherever I'd finished, they would leave me there and then, and then you know, I wait until they come back and put me on the plane. And... I just sit, sit there. I'd heard stories that this is what's happened. Right, but this is, wouldn't commonly happen for you. I had never experienced right. it yeah. before. And, uh, like, I just had never seen it. Um, and I was just like, no, that doesn't happen. And he's saying, well, yes, there are two ways that you're into the plane, you, you, that you get past this point. And one is that you you check your you check your chair in right now with the rest of your bags or you make your own way to the gate. Um and, and you make your own way. You either sit in this seat that had no... I couldn't manipulate anything. I'm yeah, strapped it's, in and it's I'm not sitting like, there. It's not like you're getting in another version of your chair. I'm getting in a lounge. Right. Really. Like a lounge with tiny little shopping trolley wheels that somebody will push me there and I will sit there. And the lounge is made for you. As in, so the, right. the legs are long and I would have to kneel on the lounge. You know? right. like it's, <laughs> it just wouldn't have... Yeah, it just doesn't right. work. Yeah. Um, and I tried to get through it and then he's just like, no, there's two ways. And I said, okay, well, f- fuck yeah. I'm going to do what I did for right. the last 10 days. And when I, f- s- I feel like if I can drag myself across a k- k- the Kokoda track, I can probably... I can do this. I can probably make it from gate 23 to gate 21. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and fuck you, I'm going to do it. Right. And, you know, people people will message me now and say that, I, you know, you're a whinger, or they'll message me now and say that a business can run whatever parameters that they can run. And right, correct. and they can. Correct. Right. Um, or I have to check in my golf clubs. Fuck you, my, right. my wheelchair is my life. Yeah. Like, that's not a pair of golf clubs. It's not a pram. I've got my, I've got my young kid, Harry, and he has a pram. And I will check his pram in when I go and take a flight. Right. But I will not check part of myself in. 
It's ridiculous. It's crazy. I mean, but even the fucking, like, even if the, the golf analogy wasn't the fucking stupidest analogy in the world already, like, it'd be the equivalent of, like, if you had to go to golf and you had to hand over your fucking golf clubs and That's then they you gave play. you a fucking cricket bat and, like, <laughs> said, okay, go and play golf. Like, it's not, the, it's not the same fucking thing. But I got that multiple times. And, and I, I know. I mean, I remember at the time people, and I was like, are you fucking... Kidding me? Serious? The same people who would have told Rosa Parks she should sit in the fucking part of the bus that she should sit in, yeah, by the way. Yeah, like, yeah. like People are like, why are you making a fuss? Exactly. People who don't... But I mean, of course, we all know who the people are. People who don't understand privilege. I mean, I have to check myself on this all the time. I mean, genuinely, like, I mean, I am a white, middle-class, private school-educated man. Like, the, the privilege that I am still not aware that I have, you know, that... Still comes as a surprise to me. A guy who likes to think that I'm engaged in the world and has a decent level of empathy and understanding. Even still, there are things that I become aware of that I go, fuck, I just never would have thought of that. You know, because I've never had to experience it before. Well, I feel like I have a massive level of privilege and it's only when... It's only when people remind me that that I'm like, you know what, there are some... There are some bullshit and... But I, I guess I bet that's a moment that your Stella Young would have been like, you know, good she on was, you she for was not. A, she was both. Right. Interesting. She was like, she was like, why did you get out of your wheelchair? Mm-hmm. And why? Oh, as in, like, yeah. Why did you actually? And why right. didn't you just fucking sue them? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> make, yeah. I can imagine. That. Make permanent right. change for everyone. Yeah. Not just, you know, mine is I can do what I can do, and I, I know it's a. Uh, it's the country kind of upbringing, and it is. Short, but I, I don't ever want to see the inside of any kind of lawsuit. I just right. don't. It's no, not no, who no, I no. am. It's not who you are. No. You did it your way. Yeah. I mean, was... that's the thing that anyone who messaged you about that, and I would say this if I didn't know you, if I was just looking from the outside, anyone who messaged you about that did not understand that you were doing things your way. Yeah. That's the way you tackle things. If something's there, just knock it over. Right. Do whatever you have to do. And sometimes it's messy. But... I think that 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 was really weird, though. Like crawling across a, it's like crawling through a shopping centre. Right. Like it's just never been. I've never did that before. Right. When I know that, hopefully, my life, slightly less vomit than the city. Yeah, the a, lot, a lot less vomit. <laughs> yeah, but I needed to go to the dunny, so there was probably right. a lot more piss. Yeah. Oh no. So it's, See, it's, but that's what people like. That's someone who says, "Oh, we'll have to check in my golf clubs." Doesn't have to fucking drag himself through piss to go to the toilet because somebody's taken away his legs. See, I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to crawl. I could have taken on the submissive role. And let somebody push me for right. for the hour and a half, but I don't fucking think we should. No. I think that we should be better than that. Right. And so, and this is an area where America does enshrine some do. of these things yeah, in they legislation. Do. They do. I tell my mates that that would happen if that happened in the US, and they're like, "I would own the airline." Right. <laughs> yeah, you would have your own private airline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would yeah. be Kurt Airways. Yeah, exactly. But they, they <laughs> who actually... are you flying with, Curtis? <laughs> you have to. Everyone has to get in a catch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> everyone. Everyone. Everyone's strapped down. But the people with disabilities are like, let roam free. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. You can do what you like. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's also weird because I travelled like through China and places before where there were no rules. Like right. I pulled up in my wheelchair and in a seat in front of me and they've taken off without coming and getting it. Like there have been some cra- – but I think that here, until we actually have somebody strong enough to legislate it, we're still going to have issues and we still do have issues. I've seen people try and fight this in the court sense and lose. And – um 
we won't win until we're given power. Right. And at the moment, that's why the thing that gives me the shits when I hear cripple used by able-bodied people on TV, you are you are saying that because we don't have the same power as what you know the black community would. If he. If, that guy right, if you use the N word on say the N word, yep. that's ballsy. Yeah, good luck. And you know what? Right. He'll get fucking ripped to pieces. Yeah. But he can get up there and say cripple because we don't have the power to actually have people stand up and absolutely tear. He sees this community and not on purpose. He would just be like, well, I'm going to say it because there are no repercussions and I'm being edgy and this and that. But at the end of the day, it's a bit gutless because right. you're not really taking on a word that actually has some sort of pushback from you. You might get 20 people say something on social media. You won't get people turning out in front of your doorstep wanting to kick your ass, you know. So I, I think that there is just such an imbalance of power within disability in our community that... I would love to see change, you know. I just, I just, and but then again, when I so, but I then you go to somewhere like Kokoda, and you see, you know, then it's on a whole st- or Africa or wherever where it's still a whole different level. Yeah, again, but- what I, I, I no, I'm interested just in like what you think the kids because you told a great story in the book about the kids seeing you like you know on the track and doing the track. What was your hope or what did you feel was happening when? When that uh, happened, you could see a level of understanding about engagement in life. That hopefully, if if one family went away and just understood that, you know what, he or she should be in the middle of our community, right? You know that that see that family that stood around and allowed me to have my struggles and and let me go through my hardships. Um, if one person took that away and allowed their their kid to feel hardship as well then great because hardship i think like disability i think hardship is something that's pretty beautiful that struggle is like there's nothing shameful about struggling about dragging yourself through something the struggle is why we're here is because we have developed because we've been able to struggle through stuff and we've we've grown as a people and and if we took all the struggles out of life like I just think that everything would become static. We would just sit there in the same place that we were 50 years ago. Uh, it's interesting. That we were having a little chat off air while we were having a break about, you know, family and kids and stuff like that. And I think that it, the idea of having a kid, you know, bringing them into this world, which I'm sure is what every generation has always thought, can I bring them into this world? The idea that, you know, you never know how their life's going to turn out and, you know, what their life's going to be like. The idea that you have to... I mean, it's it's a it's a big idea to open yourself to, and the only way that you can really open yourself to it in a, in a reasonable way is to go. I accept the struggle, whatever this is. Yeah. I, like I accept, you know, it will be at some stages a struggle, and I accept that. How do you think your parents? Because there must have been a temptation when you were a kid for them to not let you fall. If you know what I mean? Like, how do you think they had the bravery or the strength or the whatever it was that they had to understand that not only would you have your struggles with, you know, your disability, but you would also have, you needed to have the the same struggles that everybody else has in other aspects of their lives. I think every generation since the pharaohs have been saying, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, (laughs) and this next generation's so lazy, they want it all right now. (laughs) 
Um, it's <laughs> probably true. Yeah. Probably, yeah Adam, Adam and Eve are looking at Cain and Abel going, oh, you guys. She's got it easy. I mean, in the old days in the garden. Yeah. Where, where's all the snakes now, hey? <laughs> yeah, we used to be tempted every day. Yeah, yeah, you haven't yeah. been tempted for not, a week. Not once. Um, uh, Mum and Dad... You know what? I don't know. I know that I. Well, tell speak. me. Uh, maybe this is an easier question. How how will you, as a parent, deal with the times when your child struggles? What's your thought on that? I will give him safety, but I know that when you even see it now, you know, like he, he, from the moment you're born, you're struggling to do right. stuff. And now he's struggling to stand up. He's struggling to get his toy and I'll never get it for him. Right. <laughs> I, I love, I love my, my young fellow. He's, you know, it feels weird still talking about just your little human there. Right. You know, like he's, he's going to be his own, own man. And I think that, I know that the world needs more really good people that right. want to engage, that want to be a part of life, you know? Like, the world just needs... They need it. And, and I think that... I think that if I instill anything into him, it's that that struggle's okay. You know, that broken bone will heal and, and it's okay to feel disappointed. You know, that's, that's just a, a bit of a kind of stepping stone and it's creating you. And I don't know. I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to try to um, to highlight the 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 struggle can be actually the person. Now I have a terrible habit on this podcast, Kurt, of like having somebody on for well, you know, at this stage we've done about an hour and forty, and uh, not actually getting to the thing that they're best known for. I think I managed to talk to Pinky Beecroft for nearly two hours without mentioning a machine gun fellatio. So uh, I'd like to talk about you as an athlete. Um, People should read your book, like Pushing the Limits. I honestly, I know it sounds like I'm plucking it, but it's just fantastic. And if they want to know the details of all those things, I think you know, read the book and but. I'm interested in a couple of things in particular. The first one is um, you played basketball at the start. What was it about doing an individual sport rather than doing a team sport that attracted you? Uh, It was probably the people around me. I really enjoyed the culture that was wheelchair racing. And what was that culture? The culture was the world champion would take me into his house for two weeks and and show me the the path. Uh, the, the, The... the, also, the individual thing was that you you could set your own path and deal with your own struggles. You could um, you could you just had a lot more control over who you were and who you hung out with. In basketball, you were thrown with a group of guys, and you know, like it or lump it, if you want to be part of the team, that's who would, who you're with. Where wheelchair racing, you know, in general, uh, in general, the community has pretty much an like a no dickhead policy, really. Right. <laughs> you know, it really, it really right. does. Yeah. Because the the pack kind of, you know, like it just it sorts out the guys that they don't want to be there. It used to be more like it when I was a kid. Like I used to see the old boys just smash you into the gutter if they didn't like the way that you were racing. You, you know, you changed pretty quickly. Um, and for me, the people were just. They represented strength to me, not skill as much as just 
they were just strong guys. And and was that the same reason that, you know, you decided that you wanted... I mean, particularly your event has really been the marathon, yeah. which is the hardest of them all. Yeah. Like, was there a particular reason that, you know, you would... I, I mean... You didn't just choose like in an individual sport and you didn't just choose a hard individual sport, but you just went, I'm just going to do the toughest one of all. There is something really weird about me. Uh, This one particular, like if somebody says to me that there's a view on top of that hill and there's Mm. a cable car or you can crawl for six hours, you know, I'll crawl. Right. There's there's this idea that the the long road is just so attractive to me, uh, that the long road is so much more rewarding. And if you're going to sink your life into something, make it... Make it worth doing. And I found that when I started racing, I just wanted the longest, hardest. Um, it helped that the marathons were a professional sport, so I got right. paid along the way. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit, of a, right. a bit of a plus. But it just seemed like it was the, the longest road available to me. And if I, would, if I would taste success on it, I will have had to avert it. Uh, I, w- I won't keep you forever because I know you've got a... I drive back home, uh, but Ramona is enjoying getting her back scratched by you, so she, she probably doesn't want me to finish this. Uh, t- talk me through, when was, when did you feel like you belonged? Is it, I guess is my first question. How long did that take before you felt like, I belong here, I'm, I'm really part of this? In a professional sense, I mean in a you know, sporting sense. Yeah, I, I felt like I belonged really quickly in a um, minion sort of way, right? Uh, as in the group. That that's our best asset is that we we just. If I find like I know I, I see kids in chairs pushing by me in shopping centres and I chase them down. Right. You know, like we we create our own community and it's really strong. Yeah. Uh, so I felt like I was part of the community really quickly when I. It took me a long time to feel like it was my community. It felt like I was kind of living in someone else's, someone else's thing. Um, but I do now. I do feel like it's mine, and and that that I have the ability to shape it. Right. And and that comes with its own responsibilities, though, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, you and it t- comes with from a lot of work and a lot of time in the sport, and. Um, like I know that I'm done in a few years, and I want to make sure that Australia has another guy there, and another guy that's that's in my event even, just doing doing what I do and and winning and and enjoying that kind of thing. And uh, it's it it seems though like forever forever there's always somebody who's got more ownership over it than what oh, I will. You know, like there's a guy, Heinz Fry, he's been racing since he was 20 and he's now mid-50s and he's still in our pack, you know. Right. Like, so right. it's like I'm still borrowing it off him. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love my community. Right. I just, I seriously, I think that I want, I want, I want my kids to see it. I want them to, to grow up in it. Um even if it's just alongside, because you know there are some some guys who just seem to, they seem to get it, they seem to just have been through some of the most biggest parts of hardship in life, but then they've just went, you know what, I'm going to smash this thing up, I'm going to I'm going to be this person that I want to be, and you know, like I just I love I love the people. Uh- 
people can read all about your sporting career in your book. That's a good way to get them to read the book. Okay. You know, we don't need to talk about that. I'm sure you talk about that with everybody. Yeah, yeah. So you know. Yeah, I think that the good thing about uh, the good thing about this like podcast is that there's a level of honesty that and yeah, honesty uh, in in general that you won't see in any other form because it's all all the rest of them seem to be cut down and and you you portrayed in a certain way that that you have no control over really like somebody's somebody's there and they're cutting together a piece and they in general want the piece to be inspirational or or this where where I I, I love podcasts because it's such an extended period of time and there really seems to be no no pretext of how it's going to be how it's going to run it's like right the dog will come in and bark for yeah, example yeah 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 <laughs> uh, i want to ask you two quick things and then i'll let you go but i would like to know these how do you deal with setbacks uh setbacks i i always when i'm going through tough periods i always remind myself of of where i want to be outside of that um and i, I seriously like i need I need constant um, feedback from myself, and a lot of it is talking and saying stuff one at a, you know, one after the other, just reminding myself of where I'm going. Of this is only this isn't permanent. This is temporary. Um, get through it, um, and you know. Also, sometimes the setback will be the most memorable thing. Like, cool memories don't have to be just the positive ones. Cool memories can actually, like, strong memories can be hard work and extremely emotional. Like, everything can't be just joy or else we're bored. Like, I would be so bored if everything was easy and fun. You need these periods of hardship to enjoy life. That's a really good... uh way to finish but I want to ask this question so I'm not going to finish on it <laughs> you can edit it that would have been, that, it. I, don't like, it I don't like to edit mate I like to keep it real okay uh, but uh, I like to know what people think happens when we die do you know oh. do you have uh, I just like to know from people do you have any do you think about it at all is it like something that you have a like a theory on or a belief in or do you like what, what do you think I'm Probably too worried about, not too worried, I'm too engaged with what we're doing right now to worry about. Yeah, so it's not a, like an omnipresent these. thought in your mind. No, like, no. Like, uh, I, don't, I just want to make sure that I'm looking after the people behind me. I don't, when my time's done, you know, fuck, I'll figure it out then. Right. <laughs> <laughs> for now, for now. How about we just look after each other and go from there? Okay. Well, see, that's an even better note to finish on. Uh, Kurt Fernley, people should read your book. It's called uh, Pushing the Limits. It really is fantastic. I can't. I, I really, really highly recommend it. I think people will absolutely love it. And you can hear all the actual details that a decent interviewer would have asked you about uh, about your life. Uh, you see, okay. They're like, did he win a lot of marathons and like, some Olympic medals and shit? Couldn't you, couldn't you have answered, asked about any Wait, of that? Wait, we didn't talk about one Olympic, Paralympic race. Not one Paralympic race. Not one New York. Not one New York marathon. How many of those have you won? Five. Five? Didn't mention one of them. Not one. Not one. 38, 38 marathon wins. Right, didn't mention one of those. How many many Olympic gold medals have you got? Oh, only a few. Only a few? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's all in the book, people. Uh, Are you on Twitter, Facebook, those sort of things so people can find you? Sure am. 
So uh, just Kurt if they Google your name and yeah, look where they hang out, you'll be there. Oh, I'm there usually. And uh, let Kurt know that you heard about him on the podcast and, and read the book, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming to do it. Thanks for the invite. Love it. I got no